0: Heavenly Fathers, we still our hearts right now to receive Your Word. I ask that You would, by Your Spirit, cause us to listen well. It's so easy to be distracted, and certainly in a culture that has been reared on sight and image, oftentimes the proclaimed Word falls on deaf ears. I pray that would not be the case. I pray instead, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to listen in such a way that we would find ourselves changed as Paul was changed. Help us to see, Father, that in each and every one of us, there's an old man and an old woman, just like Paul, that began this life and before Christ continued in rebellion against you. Help us to see, Father, that that old person, if continuing to the very end, coming into the presence of Christ, the great judge, will be judged forever and ever. I ask, Lord, that we would not only understand the magnitude of our rebellion against you, the sin that permeates us, but we would also see the way out in Christ, that we would see the transformation of the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul and realize that he was a sinful man just like us, and that you can, through Christ, make us new. I pray, Lord, that our identity this morning, if not in Christ, would be changed to Christ. Whatever we came into those doors with, Father, identifying ourselves as male or female, educated, ill-educated, rich or poor, I pray, Lord, that would all fall away in light of the Christ and that you would show us him clearly, his light and his power to make us new. We're asking, Lord, for something extraordinary, and that is the transformation of the human heart from a heart that is born in sin and love sin to a heart that is changed into righteousness and love and mercy and grace. We ask this, Father, of you because you are a great and good God and you desire to redeem the lost. And so do that this morning, I pray. For those who are not here, who do not know Christ, make them new. For those of us who do, Father, cause us to worship Jesus even more. We're so thankful for this day, Lord, for this gathering and for all true gatherings here in the South Bay, in this state, in this nation, and throughout the world. I, press you, I pray you would bless every pulpit and every preacher and every proclamation of the gospel this morning by sanctifying your children and saving many. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, my goodness, we're two weeks back to back with lots of people being sick, so I'm very thankful you're here. I hope that you're not here and you're contagious. If you are, let's not have that thing shared in common, all right? All right, if you're not in Acts chapter 21, please open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the end of 21 and the beginning of 22, and we're actually going to be looking at a passage we looked at back in Acts chapter 9, so I'm going to take a little different approach than simply walking through exegetically verse by verse, Um, Hopefully, it will be a blessing to you. My beloved, I think it goes without saying that we live in a time when identity or personal identity, how we identify ourselves, is, is certainly at a fever pitch in our cultural moment. We spend so much time worrying about how others perceive us, whether it be on social media or how we're perceived in the classroom or by our employers or even by family and friends. And oftentimes, that perception from the world really kind of teaches us or shapes how we think of ourselves. One author wrote concerning millennials, he said, millennials use social media to display and validate their identities and to seek and monitor the opinions of those they care about most. In other words, the millennials in large part will look upon the world and see what they're saying about them and then they will decide their own identity, their own personal identity. Well, it, it, you know that in a cancel culture, that can be a very dangerous thing, right? We live in a, in a moment where gender and skin color and gender, um, sexual orientation, political affiliation, all of that moves into a cancel culture that tells you you better be on the right side of these opinions and these statements of truth. And if you're not, then you'll be rejected. If you are, then you'll be received by the culture. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul and his identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ um, comes into a situation that we saw last night. Him being a disciple culminated in a riot in Jerusalem. Him, him being dragged out of the temple and nearly beaten to death. And the necess- necessity of Rome intervening on his behalf. In other words, cancel cultures, we talk about them today. Cancel cultures and, and, and uh, political identities, we talk about as though it's new. It's always been around it always will be around until Christ comes because that's what our sin nature does. We like to categorize ourselves and we like to categorize others. Um, But what we will find from our passage today, at least I hope, is that a person's identity, a person's true identity is not determined by the culture and it's really not even determined by you particularly. It's determined by God. right? True identity is identified by God in every single human heart. And he looks at the heart. He doesn't, God doesn't look at gender. He doesn't doesn't look at race. Uh, He certainly doesn't look at your your economic standing or how many degrees you have hanging on your wall in your room. He looks at the human heart. Um, And that means, my beloved, no matter how many followers you have or no, no matter what kind of an influencer you are on social media or how many likes or dislikes you get on a daily basis, that's not what God looks at. He looks at the heart. He looks at the human heart. And he wants to know, is your heart new or is it old? Has it been made new in Christ, or is it still dead in your sins and transgressions, alive or dead? And so as we continue, we're going to jump back into the storyline with the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see what's going on with Paul in Jerusalem. I would like for us, instead of just listening to this fantastic historical narrative, and it is amazing to listen to, I hope that we'll examine our own hearts, and that we will, we will want to know what our true affections are, right? Where, where, does your, where is the treasure in your heart? What do you value most? We're going to see that in the Apostle Paul. We're going to see that in those who were trying to kill him. Their affections were certainly against God because they were against his messenger. And hopefully with this knowledge, we'll, we'll know better how to live, right? If our affections are for the treasures of this world, then we'll want to repent and believe. If our affections are for Christ, then we'll want to follow Christ. So let's do that this morning. I pray you'll be with me. I pray that you will not be tired. If you're here, you're not sick, so let's not be tired. Right In Farsi, there's a great phrase. It's hasten and that means don't be tired. So literally, hasten do not be tired. Nasser, are? Are, okay. Two things this morning. One, the old man that worships idols and the new man that worships God. I want to look at Paul as the old man who used to worship idols, and I want to look at Paul as the new man who worships God, and I want you to examine yourself in light of that too. Are, the, are you the old man or the old woman still, or have you truly been converted? And can you testify to that in the way you live your life. The theme of the sermon is this, your true identity is determined by your worship. Your true identity is determined by your worship. If you want to be really specific, you can say your true identity is determined by who or what you worship, right? All right, point number one, the old man that worships idols. So Paul and his companions, they, they have finished their third missionary journey. They started in Jerusalem. They're back in Jerusalem. They were bringing a relief offering from the churches to the church in Jerusalem, which was struck by a famine. And we know from last week, he comes into Jerusalem, he's received by James, the brother of Jesus, and all the elders in the Jerusalem church. There's a great fanfare. He explains all the great work that God is doing in the Gentile world. Um, And all is well for a week or two. And then some Jews from Turkey, they rise up and they tell all these lies about Paul. They say, you know, Paul's anti-Moses. Paul's anti-law. Paul's even against the temple and all the sacrifices that we keep engaging in. None of those things, of course, were true, but they get the entire city in an uproar. They flood into the temple court area. They literally take Paul out of the temple. They drag him out, and they begin to beat him to death, right, just as the prophecies had foretold. So the Roman garrison, which was located in Jerusalem, it was actually adjacent to the temple wall itself, The Roman garrison, led by the tribune Lysias, he responds quickly and he comes to Paul's aid. But he doesn't come to Paul's aid because he's sympathetic to Paul or the Jews. He comes to Paul's aid and he arrests Paul immediately because he thinks he's someone else. Look at verse 37 in Acts 21. So as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he, Lysias, the tribune, said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So if you remember, last week we left off. Paul's being attacked. The garrison comes in. They put Paul on their shoulders, lifting him up above their heads, and they walk up the steps into, as they're about to go into the citadel of, of Antonia and go into the barracks. And so Paul's up on this platform of elevated above the people in chains. And Paul says, humbly, May I say something to you? It's such an extraordinary statement. I mean, here he is, he's he's a Jew having done nothing wrong. He's a Roman citizen, and he's asking permission from Lysias to speak. And so we get a picture here of Paul's truly captivated, spirit-led heart. In humility, he says, may I say something to you? And Lysias is perplexed, not only because he asked it in humility, but he speaks in the Greek. And Lysias thinks that he has someone else on his hands. He thinks that he has caught an Egyptian. Uh, an Egyptian leader who, according to Josephus, had either days or weeks prior to the arrest of the apostle Paul, led 4,000 men against Jerusalem. In fact, this, this particular Egyptian, he was a false prophet, and he told his 4,000 uh, followers that they were going to come into Jerusalem, they were going to overcome the walls of Jerusalem, they were going to overcome Rome and establish their authority in God's great city. Well, Josephus tells us the exact opposite happened. Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, came in, he, he squelched the uprising, he killed 400 of the Egyptian assassins, he arrested 200, and the rest fled out in the desert, including this particular prophet. And so Paul was, if you remember, Paul immediately was slapped into chains last week. No one asked any questions. They just arrested him, and they took him away. And he thought, well, doesn't he even get to, to plead his case? Well, that would have been the case, but Lysias thought that he had a prize terrorist on his hands. He thought that he had captured this Egyptian who made such a mess of things, and he knew that if he had, well then he was going to be rewarded for it. Look at verse 39. Paul replied to him, "I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people." So Lysias's hopes are dashed. This is not the Egyptian he thought he was. It's a Jew. And so now he knows it's a, an internal argument amongst the Jewish people. Paul, Paul reveals his ethnic identity. He says, "I'm a Jew. Uh, from Tarsus, and he even reveals here really early that he's a Roman citizen. By, by him saying that he's of this great city of Tarsus, he's essentially saying, I'm a citizen of this city. I'm a Roman citizen, but Lysias is so caught up in all the, the emotion and the commotion, he doesn't get it this first time around. We'll see what happens with it next week. Look at what he does. He says to, he says to Lysias, the latter part of verse 39, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Now, remember, this is Paul. He's a Jew, so he has every right to be there. He had done nothing wrong. He was a Roman citizen, so had no right to be arrested without an a, a opportunity to speak for himself. And so Paul, you would think, would, would be angry. He'd be frustrated Said, Have they tried to kill me? I didn't do anything wrong. You've arrested me. You put me in chains. I didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't claim his Jewishness. He doesn't claim... His Roman citizenship, what does he do? He claims his identity as a disciple of Christ. Says, Let me speak to the people. All Paul cares about is sharing the gospel with the lost. Now, this is a pulpit. Paul has had a lot of strange pulpits up to this point in time. This is one of the strangest. I mean, this is a really weird pulpit. He's up on this platform, just about ready to be taken into the citadel, the Roman citadel. He's being guarded by Roman soldiers, and he's in chains, and he's going to preach to God's people. It's a most extraordinary scene. Now, I, I would argue, as I was thinking about this, uh, I would have been so different than Paul. I'd have been really mad. I'd have been really mad. I'd have been demanding my right as a, Jewish, uh, uh, as a Jewish male. I'd have been demanding my right as a Roman citizen. I'd have said, you can't put chains on me. Take these chains off me right now. But he doesn't do any of that. If there was an opportunity for Paul to shake the dust off these people and blame them for wrongdoing, this would have been it. But Paul does not. Paul's heart is truly revealed here for us. And so what does he do? His hands are shackled and he waves his hand and he speaks to them in Aramaic. The, the, Hebrew, the, the spoken Hebrew language of the Jews in Palestine was Aramaic, not, not Hebrew. They knew Hebrew, but he was going to speak to them in their common tongue. And what he wants to share to them is this. He wants to testify, listen, to the power of Jesus Christ to give us new identities, to give us new hearts, to give us the ability to worship the one true living God and not the idols that he, before Christ, or these Jews were obviously worshiping, wanting him to be put to death. Paul wants to identify with these people, with their zeal. Paul, Paul was once there. He knew their plight. He knew how lost they were, even though they thought they were on track. Right? These, are, these are Jews who are in the city. They're in the temple. They're worshiping. They think the one true living God, when in fact they're missing him by a mile. So he addresses them in love. Look at uh, Acts 22, verses 1 and 2. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So imagine this entire crowd, this mob that moments earlier was, so, was in such a ruckus, they were trying to literally tear Paul to shreds, complete hush. And Paul has an opportunity to to speak to them. Certainly not what they expected from a man they just tried to kill, right? Verse three, he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So the first thing that Paul does, Paul is such an amazing evangelist. I mean, this guy knew how to share the gospel. The first thing he says, I know you, I know what you're doing right now. I know your zeal. I know what you, you think that you're actually pleasing God, but you're not. And he says, I'm a Jew too. And I'm not, I'm not just one of those diaspora Jews. I wasn't just someone raised outside of Jerusalem. I was raised here. In other words, Paul's parents at some point in time brought him to Jerusalem at a younger age and trained him up in God's holy city. And Paul says, not only was I raised here in Jerusalem, but I was raised by the teacher of the time. Gamaliel was, was known, he's, he's spoken of in the Mishnah Torah and the Talmud as the prince of teachers, as the Jewish guy that if you were going to have your son under, it would have been him. So Paul says, I was raised under the strict teachings, the strict manner of the law of our fathers under this great teacher, the grandson of the great Jewish teacher Hillel. So Paul says, listen, I know your problem. Look at verse thirty, the latter part of verse 3. He said, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. In other words, Paul says, your zeal, I I matched it. In fact, Paul's going to argue, I bettered it. I was so zealous for God and for the law and for the temple and for my forefathers that I went out and I tried to actually persecute those who were following Christ. Look at verse 4. Paul said, I persecuted this way, he's talking about Christianity, to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Paul had absolutely no compassion on female Christians at the time. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. In other words, there are people there alive that could testify to the fact that they sent Paul out to be a hitman for them. So just as this crowd wants Paul dead, Paul's saying, listen, I was once on that exact same path. I used to persecute Christians too. Paul said, I used to get letters from the high priest. You think you're powerful. I got letters from the high priest and the Sanhedrin and they would send me out and I'd find these people. I'd bring them back. I'd have them arrested and some were put to death. This is Paul's resume before he came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is, he's confessing before these Roman soldiers and before all the Jews. He's confessing what? He's a murderer. He's a murderer. Now, Lysias had just said, aren't you that Egyptian assassin who came in and tried to kill the Jews? Paul says, no, I'm not him, but I am an assassin. I am a murderer. You got the wrong guy, but I am the right guy in the eyes of God when it comes to murder. So Paul knew their situation well. He knew his own heart, and he was confessing it to them. But the glorious thing is, is Paul's confessing this as, as the new Paul, not the old Paul. Right, the, the old Paul was passionate about an idol, and that was a version of God from the Bible that wasn't the true God of the Bible. And he was passionate about serving God by doing what? Well, by hating Christians, by trying to have them arrested and persecuted, and if possible, even put to death. And so Paul's saying, I know your old hearts. I had an old heart just like you. It was just as dead as yours. It was just as passionate about idols as yours. And even though Paul says, you want to kill me today, I know that too, because I used to want to kill people just like me. In other words, he, he wanted their attention. He wanted them to see themselves clearly in that moment as murderers, as murderers in the eyes of God. Not Jewish men worshiping God, but as murderers in the eyes of God. He wanted their attention, and I would argue that today, if, if Paul were to walk through those doors, he'd say, I want your attention too. Because this this is not just a matter for the Jewish people. This is a matter for the sinful heart. This is a matter for all people to deeply consider. My beloved, you know, if you don't, I'm going to tell you, we all start off like Paul. We're all born into sin. We all engage in sin. We all love sin apart from Christ. In fact, sin is what dominates our lives. Now, if you'd been, I bet if you'd been raised as a male, of course, at that time, if you'd been raised as a male by Jewish parents in Jerusalem, put under the tutelage of Gamaliel, I imagine you'd have turned out just like Paul. I imagine you'd have been a a, a zealot Jew, and you'd have pursued Christians as well. You'd have been a murderer at heart in that way. If you'd have been like Paul, Paul says in Philippians 3, he describes himself his old self, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless, was is, I'm the guy, I'm the great Jew who hated God. But you, most of you were probably raised, most of you, not all of you, raised in the Western world, and so you've been trained to worship the God and the idol of radical personal autonomy. And I do believe that's becoming one of, the, one of those idols that is just rearing its head everywhere, Your life as you want it. You know the phrase that we hear so much that you are to be true what? Be true to, finish it for me, yourself. You hear that everywhere. People want you to drink Coke, so they say be true to yourself. People want you to get a lower mortgage, they say be true to yourself, right? Being true to yourself is the idol. It's you being God, making all decisions in accordance with your own desires. But just like Paul Whether you know this or not, your identity, who you really are, and your worship, what you value and esteem most in life, it cannot be separated. Your true identity is tied to who or what you worship. So if you worship work, well, if if that is what you value most, work and success at work, well, then then your identity as a workaholic is a, a right identity, right? That's your idol. If you worship leisure, then your identity as being slothful or, always seeking entertainment or always that next hobby, then that would fit you. If, if, you're, if you worship your children, you'll identify as father or mother, not disciple of Christ who's going to parent my children well, but father or mother will become your supreme identity. If you worship your marriage, then husband or wife. You get the picture. Whatever you worship most will be your primary identity. Whatever you love most in your heart, in your heart of hearts now, Not what you say you love, because all Christians say they love Christ most, but what your heart really loves. So the Bible clearly reveals, and I would say human experience testifies, that we all worship. Every single human being this morning, regardless of where they are on this planet, is worshiping someone or something. Every single one of us. The question is not do we worship, it's what? It's who or what we worship. Who or what we worship. And who or what you worship What you treasure most is your true identity. That's who you really are. You say, what? male, female, rich, poor, educated, ill-educated. It's who or what you worship. We talk today in in our cultural dialogues about identity. We talk about all the superficial things, don't we? We think they're really deep. We talk about race and gender and sexual orientation and education and looks and social status. All those things are superficial, very, very superficial. When in reality, your identity is determined by your worship. Who or what captivates your heart? You want to know who you really are? Ask that question. Answer that question. But be careful, you might not like the answer. Even as a professing believer, you might not like the answer. Where your treasure is, Jesus said what? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value most is who you really are. So in these past few days, I think that we've seen here in light of the the leaked, the leaked decision from the Supreme Court, we've seen these past few days uh, the Western idol of personal autonomy at its rawest form, in some of its rawest form that I've seen, I know, in my lifetime. Tens of thousands of women demanding the right to what? To murder their unborn child. That's what they're demanding, even up to the moment of birth. Now listen, it's not because they don't know it's not murder. Of course they do. We all do. It's because they worship themselves. What's the chant? My body, my choice. My body, my choice. That's an idol. That's God to them. Don't tell me, they say, what to do with my body, even if it means killing my unborn child. No exceptions, no boundaries, no consideration, no accountability to the child, to the father of the child, or to God himself. Absolute personal autonomy is their God, and therefore what? Listen, don't be confused by this. If absolute personal autonomy is the God, then murder, even of their own child, is permissible. The religion says it's okay, because personal autonomy is what matters most. I don't think we see this clearly, Christians. I don't think that we get what's really happening here at a heart level for those who are engaging in this type of faith. So Paul stands before these people and he freely confesses that his old, murderous, idolatrous heart is against God. He says, I'm a murderer. And he does that not only, he does it to refute the accusations. He wasn't anti-law, he wasn't anti-Moses, he wasn't anti-Demple. But he does it, I think, as an evangelist, first and foremost, to convict their hearts. He wants them to see that he was just like them at one point in time. He wants them to see it. He wants to reveal that even though they think they're pursuing God by persecuting Paul, a Christian, they're actually against God and being judged by God. And if we are to identify, listen, if we're to identify compassionately with the lost in our lives, if we really want to know people who do not know Christ and the struggles they are going through, then we must have the same compassion that Paul had. This very morning, all those in your mission field who do not know Christ, listen, they only know their old self. That's all they know. There is no newness. There is no life. They only know a life of idolatry and sin. They only know a life of rebellion against God and his son and the gospel that can save them. Now, if that's true, my beloved, listen, Christian, with all your might, stop condemning the lost. What right does the church have to condemn those who do not know Christ? According to John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, they already stand condemned because they reject the Lord. We're not in a position to do that. We need not do that. Instead, we ought to sympathize and have compassion. And if you were like Paul and you remember you were older when you came to Christ, you know what it was like to be lost. Oh, you know, don't you? You know how dark it was. You know how lost you really were. We're not here to stand and condemn the world. We're here to call them to Christ to be saved. Because if you're honest, you like Paul, you walked in their shoes, right? I mean, what dominated your life before you knew Christ? Was it money? Was it power? Was it sex? Was it entertainment? What was it that captivated your heart most? It means, my beloved, that I think Christians need to stop using the word crazy in the clinical sense We need to stop using that term. This past week, the number of Christians who said, these people are crazy. These people are out of their minds. These people are insane, as though their behavior is clinically insane. Now, we would say it's insane in terms of what they're doing in light of God, but the Bible doesn't use these terms when it talks about sin. The Bible calls it worship, right? Is it worshiping God or worshiping an idol? So very clearly, Paul, when he was persecuting the church, And he was having men and women arrested and put to death. He wasn't crazy. He was worshiping. He was worshiping an idol. And in his worship of that idol, he believed it was good to go and persecute Christians. All those that had gathered in Jerusalem on that day to kill Paul, they weren't crazy in the clinical sense. They believed that they were serving God, upholding the law, upholding the name of Moses and the temple. And therefore, they were going to try to kill Paul. They were worshiping a false god. And they could not stand, in their legalism, they could not stand someone like Paul preaching a message of what? Salvation by grace grace through faith in Christ alone. They hated that, and so they wanted him dead. Not because they were crazy, but because they worshipped an idol. Now listen, my beloved, your neighbor, your neighbor who, who fights tirelessly to save the planet, or your coworker who truly advocates for gender fluidity, Or maybe your best friend who truly believes, in light of this past week, who truly believes that it is a woman's right to murder her unborn baby and it's good for the mother, they are all worshiping false gods. And their identity as environmentalists or LGBTQ plusers or abortion advocates, it all stems from their false worship because this single principle applies for all people and all places at all times. Are you ready? It's not my quote. I'll quote it. This is from Pastor Harvey F. Ammerman he put it best listen he said here's your principle for the day what we worship determines what we become what you worship determines what you become now and forever the infamous 20th century bank robber Willie Sutton Jr. I don't know if you remember him from your history class he was early 20th century his nickname was Slick Willie Slick Willie you ever heard of Slick Willie He was a bank robber. He, In his career, he was a career bank robber. He said, what do you do for a living? I rob banks. Oh, very good. $2 million. $2 million this man successfully stole from multiple banks. He was put in prison three times, and three times, Slick Willie escaped. Right? Pretty impressive in terms of his ability not to stay incarcerated. On one of his incarcerations, he was asked this. Now, I want you to listen. This is so profound. He was asked, Why do you continue to rob banks? Here's your profound worship message. Slick Willie said, because that's where the money is. That's where the money is. Willie robbed banks because he worshiped money. The money was in the banks, so he robbed them. And that's simple, right? And that's exactly what this principle is. What we worship determines what we become. What we worship determines what we become. And apart from getting a new heart and a new object of worship, which is God and not an idol, my beloved, no matter, listen, no matter how religious you become, no matter how much you attend church or try to live a moral life or try to make up for the mistakes that you've made, no matter how hard you try to clean up your life, apart from Jesus Christ making you new, the old man or the old woman remains. And the only hope you have is coming before Christ as judge, not savior. That's all you will know. So first I pray that we see that the old you, like the old Paul, has no hope of eternal life in God. None at all. Are you still with me? You see, that was a long first point. There are only two, so give me a break, all right? No hope in the old self. So the question you have to be asking is, well, how did Paul change? How How did Paul go from being a man who worshiped an idol, a false understanding of the God of the Bible and killing Christians. He murdered Christians. How did he go from that to being a disciple of Jesus Christ who was willing to give his own life for the gospel? How did he change? Because that's what you want to know, right? How did you change if you have changed? How do we how do we see people in our mission field change? Point number two, I pray that you are are still with me because we really want to see this, the new man that worships God. So, If our primary identity problem, our primary identity problem is not political, here, profound. It's not political, it's not racial, it's not gender, but it's fundamentally an issue of worship, then in order for the old you to die and the new you to live, then your worship must change, right? You must begin worshiping the one who deserves all your worship. And it's no idol in your life, it is God Himself. Your heart must go. Your heart must go from being captivated by whatever worthless idol that captivates your heart. And it's something, if it's not Christ. right? It must go from the idol to the worship of the one true living God. And so Paul wants them to get this. He wants, to, he wants them to see that he's a new man. He wants them to see his new identity and his new heart, that he's no longer the old Paul who used to persecute and try to kill Christians, that he has been born again. And so what does he do? The Apostle Paul's brilliant here as well. He uses his own testimony Remember the dramatic experience on the road to Damascus when he was blinded and then saw Christ? He uses that to share the gospel here. Look at verse 6 in Acts 22. Verse 6, Acts 22. Paul says, I was on my way and drew near to Damascus to arrest more Christians, right? That's what he was going to do. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 9, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Verse 11, and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. So, here in Acts 22, verses 6 through 16, they are par- it's a parallel passage, and it parallels very, very closely some distinctions, which we'll, we'll look at a little bit. It, it parallels Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. So you know me to normally kind of work through exegetically, verse by verse. I'm not going to do that. If you really want to know that, go back and listen to the sermon from Acts chapter 9. It's, uh, it's online. You can listen to it. What I'd like to do, instead of repeating a sermon, I'd like to highlight for you three things. There were several, but three big things that Paul went through in order to become new, right? What is, it, what, what is required of us to actually die to the old self, the old man, the old woman, and become a new man or a new woman in Christ? These are three essentials. So they're absolutely necessary. If you know Christ, you've gone through them. If you haven't, then you want to listen with all your might. We don't want to be stuck as old selves, right? I mean, most of us love new things. Most of us love new things. If you ever been in a new car, you're like, mm, that's a new car smell. They actually have fragrances now called new car smell. It doesn't smell like a new car, but they try, right? If you've ever been into a new house, you smell paint, you smell timber from the building of it, right? So we love new stuff. Most of us, I, I imagine even the unsaved say, I want to be made new. So how, how do we do that? How do our hearts become captivated by Christ? First, listen, first, we must see that every soul, regardless of our upbringing or our worldview, starts life off. Against God. Right? No one starts in favor of God. No one starts as a believer of Jesus Christ. We all start off against God. Born into sin, living in sin. Look at verse 7, Acts 22. So Paul's describing his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He said, I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice it's the old Saul, not Paul. And I answered, who are you, Lord? Paul has no idea who's talking to him. But whoever he's talking to, he knows he's been persecuting. And then he said, the voice said, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Wow, what a moment. What, what an earth-shattering moment for the Apostle Paul. You talk about an aha moment, this is it. He thinks he's serving God by persecuting Christians, and then Jesus appears to him and says, oh, by the way, in persecuting them, you persecuted me. You are persecuting me. Amazing moment in the history of the church. Paul is, he, he, he could be categorized as one of the most religious men in, the, in human history. I mean, this guy was passionate. He was passionate as an apostle. He was passionate before he came to Christ, right? He's out trying to kill Christians or at least have them put to death. And so he thinks he's fighting for God, but in fact, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. You're fighting against me. You're fighting against the Father. My beloved, before any movement can be made by you or anybody in your mission field out of the old self, and into the new, you must know, you must recognize and believe that your old heart is filled through and through with sin. You got to know that. You can't start off cr- with Christ saying, "I'm kind of there, I'm almost there, I'm kind of good, maybe a little bit more." It's dead, dead, and then more dead. That's how we start off at war with God. Now you might be saying, "Oh, no, you know, give me a break, Keith. I've never tried to kill a Christian. <laughs> I mean," done some bad things in my life. I've never gone that far. I've never had anybody arrested and persecuted and tried to put them to death. I've never done that. Maybe so, but the Bible teaches clearly that every single human heart that is not made new by Christ is against God. It literally uses the term enmity. That means you're at war with God. Now, you shouldn't want to be at war with anybody, but certainly not your creator. That's a lose-lose every time. Take the first commandment. You say, oh, I've, never, I've never arrested or persecuted or put to the death of a Christian. How about the first commandment? The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's it, your whole life. You say, well, you know, as a Christian, I don't do that. Before I came to Christ, I didn't, I didn't love him at all, let alone with my whole being. I didn't love him at all. Now, we know that. If you came to Christ, you know, before I came to Christ in my undergraduate studies at Davis, I didn't love God at all. I mean, there was no love. Somebody said, what do you think about God? I said, well, either I don't care, or I don't like him. But it certainly wasn't love, and yet that is the first and greatest commandment, to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, before Christ, we love ourselves, don't we? Oh, we love ourselves, and we love the world that brings the fleshly desires to fruition in our lives. That's why James is able to say very clearly, James 4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. It's being at war with God. Then James says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? an enemy of God. That's the Bible. That's not me. God is, according to Scriptures, worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Every moment of every day from every creature, everything He's ever made. And yet before you came to saving grace in Christ, you didn't do a single thing for God's glory, right? We know that, and if you were to be honest, every single thing you did was for your own glory. Even the good things that you were doing for others. I mean, why did you do them before Christ? Why did you serve your parents when they were in need? Why did you help your best friend get out of a jam when, when he found out that you know, his bike had been disabled? Why? You know why. Because you wanted that glory for yourself. It wasn't for the glory of God. Jesus made this very clear, Luke eleven twenty three. 23. Whoever is not with me is what? He's against me. Jesus says, whoever's not with me is against me. So first, if you want to go from old to new, you have to see clearly. That apart from Jesus Christ, all your heart is is against God. That's it. Nothing good, nothing redeemable, nothing holy in you. All right? Number two, in order to receive a new identity, a person must have a personal encounter with Christ. Now, this is something we don't talk about much in Reformed churches. We get too heady at times, and we miss the heart. But I want you to look at verse 8 with me. Paul said, who are you? Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Paul says, who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, the crowd must have bristled at this, right? Paul is attaching the term Lord, as in God, to Jesus of Nazareth. They must have hated it. They knew who this Jesus was, right? This was the man who was executed on Roman cross for crimes of what? For blasphemy. So they, they knew, they didn't, they didn't believe he was God in the flesh. They rejected him and his claims. But my beloved, in order to be born again, every single sinner must see and experience truthfully God's resurrected son. Simply put, you gotta know him personally. Tozer, the, the great 20th century Christian author, he, he put it like this, listen, this is so good. He said, the Christ of the Bible is not rightly known until there is an experience of him within the believer. Not rightly known until you experience Christ on the inside. He calls it a spiritual confirmation, an inward knowledge, or a witness, that you really, really know him. That means you don't have an idea of Jesus. Or maybe you were raised in a church where they talked about Jesus. It doesn't mean having Jesus as your role model. You know, here's Jesus, is how he lived. You know, what would Jesus do in that movement years ago? That was not a good gospel movement, right? It means knowing the real Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus 2,000 years ago who came to earth and took on flesh and communed with mankind. It means knowing him personally, the person of god jesus christ the son of god the second person of the triune god the creator of all that is seen and unseen the sinless son of god who did what who ascended the cross and paid for your sins it means really knowing him now i believe my beloved there are many many in the church this sunday this mother's day worshiping god singing to god praying to god who have never met jesus christ well they they know his name and they may be able to give you great theology about jesus and they maybe talk about in great detail, you know, how he is the, he's the mediator, he's the perfect mediator between God and man, reflecting from God to man who God is and reflecting back to God, the perfect man. He may be, he may know all that, but if you do not know Jesus, I mean, really know him, like you know the person that you love the most, like you know the thing that you enjoy the most, then you do not know God, really, really knowing him, the pure light, the unapproachable light that came down to save sinners. One of the distinctions between this passage and Acts 9 is the emphasis on light. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 6. Paul says, At about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around us. It was noon. Well, at noon what? At noon, the sun is the most brilliant in the sky, and yet the light of the Son of God overpowered a Middle Eastern sun at noonday. It wasn't at night. It was to emphasize the brilliance of the light of the power of Christ. Jesus said earlier in John chapter 8, Jesus said what? I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Listen, no one can come out of the darkness, out of the old self and sin, without seeing the light of Christ, without experiencing the light of Christ. No one can be made new and delivered into this path of righteousness unless they know Jesus your heart's not going to be satisfied unless you really know Jesus. Right? Religion won't do it for you. You, you. All the fears that you have, all the dreams that, that have not come to fruition, all those things that will cause you to go into a state of despair or depression, they'll get you if you don't know Christ. I mean, really know Christ. I, I, I've been blessed. I have, most of you know, I have, I have four grandchildren and one imminently on the way, like within days, five. Um, they know me as Papa. I love that phrase. Um, if, if I didn't get to spend time with them, they might know me from afar, they might hear my voice on a telephone, they might see me periodically on a Zoom call, but m- they know me. They know how I talk, they know how I feel. We had a chance to watch the girls the other night, and I, I, I was sharing with Lori, it's incredible how I miss the boys, how much they're just always on you. They're always on you. They're on your shoulders, they're on your back, you're holding them, you're carrying them. They know you. They probably know me more intimately than, than many other people, right? So if someone were to say to them, you know, who's Papa? They say, well, I'll tell you who Papa is. Christ has to be to you infinitely greater than your Papas or your Grandmas or your Mothers or your Fathers, your best friend, whoever it is that you know. This person really knows me. Christ has to be that to you infinitely more. He has to be. He must be in order to be made new. And we know Him. We know Him person to person through His Word. He, he tells us who he is through his word. He speaks to us. He comforts us. We know him through prayer. We know him through the body of Christ, right? You are the body of Christ. I get to know Christ. As I get to know you, I get to know Christ. As you love me, I get to be loved by Christ. As I love you, I get to love you in Christ. To be changed, Jesus Christ must become more real to you, more personal to you than the very air that you're breathing at this very second than the people that you love most in your life. He must be in order to be made new. So we see that we have to know ourselves clearly, the sinfulness of our hearts. We must know Jesus intimately and personally. I'll give you one more. Stay with me. Stay with me. Lastly, ready? We must respond to the light of Christ in faithful obedience. You gotta follow Jesus. You gotta follow Jesus. Look at verse 10. Paul said, what shall I do? I mean, Paul thinks I'm in trouble, (laughs) I'm in big trouble. The very people that I've been putting to death this Lord says I have been persecuting him. And the Lord said to him rise and go into Damascus and there will be and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Paul asked, "What shall I do, Lord?" Do you realize in Paul's glamorous Jewish life being raised in Jerusalem under Gamaliel as as the premier student, some say that he was in line to to potentially become the leader of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Do you know that that this was the first time in Paul's life he actually worshiped God? First time. He says, what shall I do, Lord? Right worship of the living God, because for the first time, Paul actually saw God for who he truly is through the light of Christ. His whole life, he thought he had been submitted to God, I mean, he he was persecuting Christians to serve God when, in fact, he was actually going against God. But here, his heart is exposed. Paul realizes his sins. He sees the glorious, resurrected Jesus Christ in all his beautiful light, and he what? He submits his life to him. It's total, complete conversion. He turns from his idol and his self-glory, and he turns to Jesus, and he trusts in this Jesus of Nazareth. As what? As Lord and Savior. And then he follows him. He follows him. Verse 10 again. What shall I do, Lord? How can I serve you, Lord? Whatever you ask of me, Lord, I will do. It's an Isaiah 6 moment, is it not? Send me, Lord. I'll go. And, and God sends him. That's why he's here in this particular moment. Ananias tells him, doesn't leave him in suspense. Look at verse 14. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. All that happened on the road to Damascus, right? Because he wanted, God wanted Paul to become an apostle. Verse 15 For you will be a witness for him, Jesus, to every one. Of what he'll be a witness to him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the Jews is going to appoint Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles because he has seen and experienced the living Christ. That's going to be his job, and Paul he accepts this. Did you notice that there was no mm, oh Lord he accepts it. He accepts it joyfully. He said, "Well, why? What what changed?" on that road that would cause Paul from going, from persecuting Christians to wanting to see Christians built up. Well, his object of worship changed. It's that simple, right? He was no longer worshiping the law. He was no longer worshiping Moses. He was no longer worshiping the temple. He was worshiping the risen Lord. He was worshiping Jesus Christ. His heart, Paul's heart, was now captivated, not by the law of Moses, but by Jesus, by a person, a real, living, reigning king had Paul's heart. In other words, as we had a chance to sing, Jesus Christ now to Paul was his life. He was his life. No longer would Paul be a persecutor of the church, he'd be a builder of the church. Now, now this is key, my beloved. listen. Knowing you're a sinner before a holy God is not sufficient to change you. There are many people who do not know Christ who know their sinners before God. I would go one step further. Having a, an encounter with Christ, right? Coming to experience Christ. We know this from Hebrews, especially chapter, chapter 10 and chapter 6. Tasting Christ, tasting the Holy Spirit, maybe coming to church, maybe having an emotional appeal, maybe even seeing Christ and his mercy in your life, or maybe seeing Christ through a Christian. All that's glorious, and we praise God for it. It's not sufficient to change you, right? When the Holy Spirit comes and makes you new, you will follow Jesus you will submit to Jesus. Faith and obedience is necessary to be changed from the old to the new. You want a new heart? Well, you worship God. How do you worship God? Through faith and obedience to him. I love it when it's simple, don't you? I love it when it's simple that way. Following Jesus is necessary if you want to be made new. So after Ananias gives Paul his sight back, praise God, he didn't have to be the blind apostle to the Gentiles, he gets his sight back. And then he says to Paul, verse 16, and now why do you wait? That was a, that was a phrase in Eric made. said, listen, you now understand. He says to him, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Now, at this point in time, the crowd's gonna hear this and they're gonna be done listening to Paul. right? Paul is saying, salvation comes by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Not by the law, not by Moses, and not by your sacrifices at the temple. His baptism... And his proclamation is a declaration of his new identity as a child of God, as an apostle now before God and man. And so Ananias says, go get baptized. You've been united with Christ in his death. You've been united with Christ in his resurrection. You've been united with Christ and therefore what? All your sins have been washed away. Even, my beloved, listen, if you think there's no way that God can forgive me, Paul's sins are washed away through faith in Christ. And that means even killing Christians. Hmm? Think about that just for a minute. The Apostle Paul had Christians put to death and God forgave him for it. I don't care what your sin is. God can forgive you fully in Christ. He wants to forgive you fully in Christ. So Paul acknowledges his newness by submitting to Christ. Um, His identity had been changed. He, he, He tells all the people this because he obviously wants them to confess and be changed too. Right, he says, I, I know where you were. I know where I want you to be. And remember, he's still in chains, and he's still bloodied and battered, but his heart is being poured out before his, uh, his Jewish persecutors. He wants them to see that they are against God. He wants them to get a glimpse of the light of Christ, and he wants them to repent and follow Jesus too. Um, my beloved, we are surrounded this very day by family and friends and neighbors and co-workers who only know their old self. That's all they got. Right, and in Romans chapter 7 says, you do battle daily with the old and the new, right? We know that. But they only know the old self. There is no newness. There is no new identity. There is no light of Christ. There is no hope. If we want them to know Christ, and so here's an appeal to you as a Christian. If your heart has truly been captivated as Paul's was, Paul stood there beaten, battered, in chains, ready to be thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. And yet, what did he do? He faithfully proclaimed the gospel to his enemies. You want to know if the love of Christ truly dwells in you? Is that your heart toward the lost? Is that your heart towards those in your family who come against you because you follow Jesus? My beloved, this. The Bay Area is a hard place to do ministry. It really is. But if your heart has been truly captivated by Christ, then your new heart in Christ will make you compassionate for those who do not know him. I mean, real compassion. Not saying, oh, I'll pray for you and never praying. Not saying, I'll tell the gospel but never sharing the gospel. Real compassion. I would say extreme compassion even for those that you look at and struggle because their behavior is so wicked. Even those that are enemies of God. I'm gonna close right now but I wanna tell you, last week, uh, I think I had an aha moment. I like those. Um, I saw a woman on TV um, in light of the, the movement on Roe v. Wade, and she was screaming into the camera as loud as she could My body, my choice, my body, my choice, my body, my choice. And my visceral response was anger. And as I listened, I realized this woman was not, listen closely. She was not stating her political opinion on on Roe v. Wade. She wasn't. She wasn't giving uh, an analysis of the Supreme Court's potential rendering. I realized, as I listened to her, that she was worshiping. It was a worship song. It was a worship song, just like we sing. Her song, her hymn, was not as we sing. We had a chance to sing this morning, with every breath I long to follow Jesus, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. She was singing, her hymn was what? My body, my choice, my body, my choice, my body, my choice. And the more I listened, the more my heart broke because I realized her worship, what she was worshiping was not the one true living God who made her or every single unborn child that's been murdered at the hands of abortion. She was worshiping herself, and and she, in all of her zeal, had unwittingly become what she worshiped, a murderer. She was a murderer. She didn't even know it. By God's grace, there was room in my heart to pray for her. I pray I would not condemn her, but like Paul, know full well that I too was a murderer before Jesus saved me. I was an assassin of the heart. And the only reason that I see things clearly or you see things clearly is because the life of Christ has enabled you to do so. Right? There's no pride in the Christian faith. We are humble servants of a Lord who opened our eyes and gave us new hearts and new identities and a new object of worship and that is the living God through Jesus Christ. He gave him himself, my beloved, that we might worship him. So stop, if you do, stop condemning those who are lost. Stop. There's no reason for it. They stand condemned already. Instead, pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Reason scripture with them. Because as ex-murderers ourselves, once destined for judgment, we know, we know Jesus Christ and the gospel is their only hope. Amen? All right, let's go. Heavenly Father, for those of us who know your Son, I pray that we would find this a very encouraging word, that we would be able to examine our lives in Christ and we would be able to see the fruit that's been born through your Spirit and that we would rejoice that you have in fact made us new, that the old man or the old woman in us has died, that we have new identities in Christ, that we are now sons and daughters of yours and that our eternal destiny is secure through the blood of Christ. I ask, Lord, for all those here who do not know or are not sure that this morning they would commit themselves to you fully. They would recognize their hearts apart from you are utterly sinful. They would see the brilliant light of Christ and they would follow him this morning, simply trusting, simply believing and walking in faith. We ask that you would do that here for our church, Father, that we would be compassionate evangelists. We would see the lost in our mission field instead of have Our fleshly hearts rage against them. They'd be rightly broken. And we would see that they are worshiping the wrong God. And in our brokenness, Father, we would bring Christ to them. Do that, Father, through us, I pray. There are so many people in our lives that do not know you. I pray that through us, you would open our mouths, you would testify with our lives the light of Christ, and that we would bring it to them. And then you, Father, through your spirit, be pleased to make them alive. We ask that you would do that, Lord, to bless this community, to bless San Jose, and to bring yourself honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.